Hey, Howard Jacobson here. Welcome to today's Plant Yourself podcast. A quick reminder, this podcast is free for everyone and supported by patrons. So if you would like to find out about becoming a patron of the show and helping us out, helping defray the cost, helping to spread the message, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. Thanks so much and enjoy today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of Plant Yourself, Sick to Fit and Well Start Health. Let's start with a little theme music, shall we? All right, I'm so excited to bring you this conversation with Will Bonsall. Uh, Will was on the show episode 224. And I remember that off the top of my head because it's one of the episodes that I have been telling people to listen to the most. One of the one of my sort of top five in terms of how important it is for for everyone, for for individuals, for communities, and really for our civilization. And when we talked about it, when we talked about Will's radical self-reliant gardening, also veganic, which means no animal inputs, the world seemed like it wasn't ready for it. Like it's, you know, sort of a weird hippie thing to do, very fringe. And of course, now we're living through a pandemic in which our food supply is shown to be completely vulnerable, not just meat and dairy, but tons and tons of potatoes rotting because there's no trucking to get it to the places because our food supply has been set up for industrial use, commercial use rather than for individuals. Uh, we're seeing panic buying and we're seeing how the, uh, a compromised labor force can't get us the food we need and how vulnerable we are because we don't have local food supplies. So enter this idea of radical self-reliance, which doesn't seem so radical anymore. So in our conversation, I talk with Will about uh, a couple things in particular that we really didn't cover that much in the first interview. The first is particularly what this pandemic shows us. And you know, honestly, Will didn't need this pandemic to know that uh, our civilization is built on very faulty foundation when it comes to feeding ourselves. And let's be honest, imagine if the food supply ran out in the United States, how many hours would it take for the entire civilization to break down? Probably, you know, it's been said that, uh, you know, we're three, me three meals away from an insurrection. And I think we've seen that that can be pretty true. So we talk about what this pandemic should teach us and should um, really light a fire under our butts to start doing in terms of beginning to make our communities more self-reliant for food, for fuel, for staples that we need to live so that we don't have to rely on fossil fuels, on giant monocrops, on factory farms, on, on all and on global shipping of produce from all over the world. And that's not to say that we can't have those things. We can still have pineapples and avocados and bananas, but that we don't need them to survive. The second thing that we talk about in detail is his scatter seed project, which is one. Think of it as like Noah's Ark for biotic diversity. So imagine right now we're growing like most of our calories come from three or four basic crops, right? wheat, corn, oats, soybeans, rice, and th these are grown in giant monocultures and are very susceptible to pathogens, to diseases, to pests, to all sorts of things that could, you know, go through one of these fields and and really decimate the entire crop. Think Irish potato famine, where they, you know, they were all kind of the same type of potato and they all 
went under to the same pathogen. The Scatterseed Project is Will spending 40 years of his life and pretty much all of his money, all his disposable income, saving seeds. He's got 900 varieties of potato. He's got uh, hundreds of varieties of, of foods, you know, tomatoes, squash, cucumbers um, that we don't, you know, they may not be the best things to grow right now, but maybe in that treasure trove is a plant that has the genetic material to withstand some plant pathogen, you know, some plant pandemic that could that could wipe out crops. So by losing this, we're losing the diversity of our agricultural, our horticultural heritage. And Will is spending his life trying to save it. And you'll hear about that in this conversation. And also at the up right up front here, I'm going to encourage you, plead with you if you have uh, funds available. If you are doing okay in this time and you're looking for a really, really good cause, one that can save the planet, one that is in line with uh, vegan and veganic principles, please check out his Patreon. Just go to patreon.com and search for Scatter Seed, S-C-A-T-T-E-R-S-E-E-D. And he doesn't need much to keep this going, but it really is in peril right now. It may shut down. It's expensive to run. Will is not getting any younger, as he remarks. He's, he's approaching 70 years old. And we need this thing. And the world needs it. And, if, and right now, I, uh, I helped him set up a Patreon, and I'm his only patron as, as I'm recording this on uh, Tuesday, May 5th, 2020. So I would love to, by the end of the week, to see... 50, 100 patrons coming from Plant Yourself. I would feel like I've done something really important in the world if that's the only thing I ever do. So I'll be back at the uh, at the end of this interview, at the end of this conversation to let you know how you can work with me if you want and how you can support me and Plant Yourself if that's your gig. But right now, let us dive in to the conversation about gardening our way through calamity with Will Bonsell. Will Bonsell, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks. It's very good to be with you, Howard. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk with you today. And one of the reasons is, you know, with the with the pandemic and um, there's a lot of interest now in gardening and self-reliance. So as we planned our our spring and summer garden, I got out your book, The uh, Essential Guide to Radical Self-Reliant Gardening. And in reading over the introduction, I realized you've you kind of talked about this period and, you know, you've written about. Uh, the calamitous times, um, which, you know, have left the 21st century world in shambles. And so I kind of wanted to talk to you about like what what you saw, um, you know, writing gosh, 10 years ago or, and, and preparing for times like these and how we can get to the other side, um, you know, in better shape than than we started. So um, maybe begin by just like. Telling us a little bit about yourselves. I know we we, we talked uh, almost three years ago on this podcast about veganic gardening and farming, but kind of give give us a you know the cliff notes of of your of your bio before we we get into topics. Well, oh, oh, yeah, sure, okay, uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a typical hippie back to nature uh, homesteader, self reliant uh, uh, market. I mean, uh, farmer gardener, and um, and yes, uh, among the things that I a lot of people know me for is. Number one is the system of farming that we have, which is veganic in the sense that it, it's not only growing vegan foods, but growing them without animal inputs like uh, manure and bone meal and stuff like that. Um, and so that's one part of it. And also um, 
my scatter seed project, which is uh, an effort to basically uh, maintain and make available for distribution um, seeds or germplasm, which includes seeds and, and cuttings and things, for uh, for a vast variety of uh, crop uh, plant food, crop plants, and so that's uh, that's also. But the, what what you're referring to also as a, as sort of as a would be visionary, I guess. I've also written on the topic of uh, sustainable civilizations, and uh, the book that you're alluding to, um, Through the Eyes of a Stranger, basically describes a futuristic civilization, um, which is sustainable, which has, as you just said, uh, passed through a, a calamitous times, in other words, some kind of a dark ages or something, and has reemerged um, with, with a lot going for it. And, uh, and just incidentally, there's a sequel to it, which is like 90% or 95% written. It's very close to being done, which I'm hoping to come out with in the next year. People keep asking about it, and I'm trying to uh, not only finish it, but more than that, scrape together a little bit of money to get it self-published. And it basically continues with the themes of what a, mm. what a, what a sustainable society might look like. Right. Uh, there could be any number of examples, and this is just one of them. So, 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 let, uh, me, so yeah. Yeah, let me let me yeah. start by asking a question that might be you know, screamingly obvious, but probably not to most people, which is what is unsustainable about our current society? Or maybe maybe a fairer way to say it is what was unsustainable about our current society six months ago that we might not have noticed? Uh, well, lots of people have noticed. I mean, a huge percentage of people, uh, maybe most people. Uh, not everyone has, has uh, thought of it, had, had any idea of what would happen. And I certainly didn't. Or, or what might be done about it, and I certainly do have thoughts about that, and plenty of other people do. Uh, they usually refer to them as futurists. I uh, I don't have a word for myself. But um, the the key aspect, I think, of any sustainable society has got to be, um, number one, it's food and energy base. It's got to be sustainable, which is to say that it... Sustainable basically means something you can do over and over and over and over again, and without requiring inputs that are... Um, um, that are not sustainable. In other words, the classic example, of course, is non-renewable energy. Having a civilization based on fossil fuel is the uh, epitome of um, of a, an unsustainable civilization. Um, other thing, aspects of it, as a civilization uh, that's trying to be sustainable, should not be imperialist. It should not be depending on other parts of the world, other countries, other societies, for particularly not for its key inputs, again, like petroleum and food and things like that. Um, it should be much more self-reliant. Um, those are the main ones that come to my mind uh, on more smaller community scales. I think a truly uh, sustainable uh, community would not be totally reliant on outside sources for its health care and certainly for its culture. Um, just an example is uh, people in my small state of Maine and maybe where you are, when they want to go to a good concert or a good play or something, they have to go to a distant city. Um, Boston or New York or something, and, and not as if there isn't any talent here, but we've gotten so centralized that that's where we uh, go. We go somewhere else for our education, somewhere else for our, um, uh, our technology and so on. These things don't originate from among us. And in a truly sustainable society, that would be much more so. There would be much more control over the inputs. But I guess I think of the really big ones, the ones that really count, are food and energy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for a lot of us, things looked like they were kind of going swimmingly. Like you go to the supermarket, the shelves are always full of food. Uh, you can get any kind of food you want. You can get, you know, your hippie organic foods and your plant-based nut cheeses and, and oatly. And 
Um, it was unsustainable. And, you know, the energy that we got was from like strip mining, um, you know, mountaintops on, in, in West Virginia or, or uh, nuclear power plants. But we didn't really notice until like this pandemic hit. And it looks now we're starting to see the cracks in just about everything. Um, what, what do you want sort of, you know, aside from just sort of panicking or staying home and wearing masks in public, what kind of lessons do you would you like people to draw from how the world is cracking right now? Well, again, I would I would not say that we didn't know. We didn't see it coming. We didn't see the specific thing. There's any number of calamities of scenarios. And uh, so we didn't see the specific thing happening and couldn't. But uh, no, it's, it's been on the horizon for a long time, for many decades. It's not many generations. It's just been an incrementally evolving situation. And many people have noticed that. People have been writing about it, talking about it, maybe for millennia. We've been seeing uh, civilization that has evolved become less and less sustainable and, and involving calamities. We've had lots of calamities before, and this one seems to be particularly uh, worrisome at the moment. Um, but as far as what, um, what we can do about it, um, well, let me put it this way. When I, when I first moved back to the land, I got out of college, I left my hometown, I bought some land out in the country, and I came here with a rather, frankly, a romantic idea of what I was going to do. I was thinking very individually, individualistically. And uh, most homesteaders, I think, tend to do that, is I was going to, me and my family were going to be thoroughly self-sufficient. It didn't take very long to realize that that wasn't going to happen. It wasn't working. Um, we are, as uh, Hillary Clinton says, you know, it, it, it takes a village. We're part of a, no man is an island. We're part of a larger whole. And whatever level of self-reliance or self-sufficiency we attain, however good that might be, um, we still... Uh, it's not adequate to, we can't basically, um, like some of the survivalists, buy a lot of ammunition and some 50-gallon tins of peanut butter and head off into the Rockies or something like that. Um, it's, not a, it's not a sustainable option. It just isn't. We need to not only get ourselves more self-sufficient, which is basically impossible to begin with, but we need to do things to make our community more self-reliant. And that's one of the things that I face, and I think in some ways we all do, is... Uh, a big percentage of the people in my civilization, in my community, even with this in the course of this virus, still don't see the need for it. They're just looking forward to when Walmart opens up again or whatever, that, that they can get, go back to their normal. Um, they're not generally seeing a need for or a desire for more, uh, a need for more personal self-reliance. And I don't know that they're going to after this. We've, we've been in this rut for so long, a lot of people are not going to. But people are. It is having a huge effect. You commented on um, for example, my scatter seed project, um, which is basically an effort to maintain genetic diversity, um, I've been shocked this year. I can't tell you how many queue of emails I've got and mailbox. I mean, my of, of postal mail, regular snail mail, of requests. It's much more than I've ever had before. And I find out from friends that, uh, for example, Johnny's uh, Seed Company is apparently they shut down as far as individual customer orders. And uh, a friend at Southern Exposure Seeds in Virginia says they're having triple the uh, um, volume of requests. A lot of seed companies are dead running out of seeds. This is really unprecedented. And um, it's an indication that uh, people are starting to figure out something. The last time I had anything comparable to this was both uh, Y2K and, um, and the um, 7-Eleven. Now, these were occasions where people started thinking about things. Yeah. But again, but you mean, you mean that, 9-11? I don't know yeah. what I said, but yeah, 
the bomb the terrorist bombing and and then also the the y2k uh, the concern about with the change of the uh, millennia that everything planes are going to start falling out of the sky and all kinds of things are going to happen because of not being able to digitally adjust to the new the new center uh, millennia you know saying a two instead of a one um and so uh, and and so but still those things had some profound effect but still basically society went back to same as usual and um i remember you know during the the oil embargo and stuff back in the in the carter administration and stuff where all kinds of people started doing all kinds of things solar panels and everything and then uh, the reagan uh, years came along and basically everyone was go back to the party um so i'm not too confident that civilization is going itself overall is going to make profound changes right. but uh, well <coughs> within yeah. my right and, and one of the things that really attracts me to to your visionary work and especially through this uh, the novel through the eyes of a stranger is that you you know you clearly say state many times that this is your civilizations that sustainable is not a utopia it has problems and it's one version that could work it's not the only version it seems like part of our job now is to start you know instead of genetic diversity to have kind of visionary diversity to see what what we can come up with that will be able to, you know, survive in some future really unpredictable ecosystem. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we not only need diversity of seed, genetic diversity of our crop plants and stuff, but we do need diversity of institutions, diversity of different types of governments, uh, different types of communities and different visions. Uh, for example, Asperia, my 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 non-utopia, but my sustainable civilization, as I've described it, happens to be atheist, basically because I am. Am I saying, therefore, that a civilization has to be atheist to be sustainable? I'm saying nothing of the kind. They happen to be vegans. Um, is, that, is that a hallmark or a necessity for uh, a uh, sustainable civilization? And I'm not saying it is, although I am saying that basically it's ecologically much more efficient. A society can sustain a much larger population, a much higher standard of living, with more health on a smaller footprint than a animal based civilization. Mm. But still, there are other ways of. Uh, right. Well, I was actually quite convinced by the uh, the description of what's like the differences between the veganic culture in terms of, you know, what you need in terms of fencing to, you know, the, your relationship with predator animals, which is very different if you don't have sure. prey animals that you you yourself are preying on. Um, and also, obviously, you know, the, the untold story of this pandemic is when human beings eat animals in a uh, concentrated fashion, that diseases jump. Yeah, I don't know that this particular p pandemic is uh, associated with that. I, I'm not sure. I don't know if anyone knows exactly how it originated. But some other things have. Ebola absolutely was. And generally, a lot of the worst human uh, illnesses, ailments, including the Black Plague and so on, have definitely been associated with our intimate dealing with animals, eating them and having them uh, close to us, especially closely related, like in Africa. Ebola is not the only um, disease to, to derive from people um, basically eating primates, you know, bushmeat, so-called. So and so, um, yeah, that, there's a definite connection there. Um, even without it, I, I, I think um, diseases... Um, Diseases proliferate. There are certain factors in a society that, that uh, encourage um, diseases, and especially um, plagues. And, yeah, I think the, the animal connection is, is, yeah. is a very significant one. I don't know that anyone's made any such connection in this particular case. Right. So the, the, 
The line that got in, in your book, uh, Essential Guide to Radical Self-Reliant Gardening, that got me to call you again was, uh-huh. was this. I'll just read it. It says, of course, any strictly personal solutions only guarantee that you will become a target for those who have not developed any of their own. <laughs> Which like yeah. that is like that's the weak link because I've been doing sort of permaculture and prepping a little bit and everybody else in the prepping websites and the blogs and the podcasts is also talking about guns and ammo as if, you know, if you're not doing that, right. you're missing a piece of it. And I find that, you know, distasteful. But there's also a part of me that goes they're right. If I have the world's you know best sustainable garden on the, you know, an acre and a half in my backyard, how am I going to defend it? And so you talk about like community solutions. How, how do we how do we begin? Like if, you know, if people are listening to this, let's say they're in the suburbs, they have a lawn that they could start to convert. Like what are the steps that we could take as individuals both to model and lead a, this transition to a sustainable civilization? Put it very well. Model and lead; those are two very, very key inputs. Well, I could tell you about a um, a specific community-focused thing that I'm working on currently. As we, I think we've just discussed in the past, maybe my scatter seed project. The main problem that I've had over the years with doing it, so why I'm I'm losing a lot of stuff now, um, the stuff that I'm trying to preserve, is a lack of sustainable funding. Is, is not having a resource that I can count on year and year and year out to do this, and. Um, some time ago, a couple of years ago, I started trying to work on the idea for a business, basically a nonprofit, but a sustainable business um, enterprise, which would generate um, enough, um, basically a cash flow, enough, enough of a revenue stream to support my scatter seed project, which itself is very, totally dependent. It's like a public library. It, you can't expect it to support itself. It's, it's very important to civilization, but uh, it doesn't have its own wherewithal within it. So come up with an enterprise to um, do that, to basically generate those funds. And the um, and that was my main objective for this. Since then, uh, I've moved ahead with a project which, um, and, and I, now a number of us, we've formed a, a board of directors and we're incorporated within the main state law as an incorporation. And we're calling it EVE, which is a, a, a capital E, capital V, capital E. And it's an acronym for Asperian Vision Enterprises. Now, anyone who, like you, has read my book will have some idea what's meant by the Asperian Vision. Um, but even if they don't, it's still it's a handy word. It's a handle, handle we're working with, and we're calling it that. But the basic, even though my initial objective of EVE was, again, to, prov- to provide funding source for a scattersea project, it's grown far beyond that. And this gets to what you're saying about a model um, and resource. It's, um, its overall basic mission statement is to um, increase the, uh, our community's self-reliance for food and energy. Now, that's in spite of that's ignoring the fact that most people in the community don't see that as a concern, could care two poops about it, um, but to increase that. And the specific method that we're going about it with, that we're taking advantage of a current opportunity, is to start by um, starting a local health food store. There already is a local health food store, but it's, its uh, owner is retiring, and we're wanting to start one which is uh, much better in the sense of carries a lot more variety of stuff, but 
the source of the stuff in the stuff. Most you go to any any uh, health food store, and almost everything in it comes from somewhere else, if not another country, and uh, relatively little. Even stores which pride themselves on a lot of locally grown stuff, it's a small part usually of the of the offering in the store. It's usually pretty much confined to the uh, produce section, and so we're planning to do that. But our our business, our, our ideas, our business thing is uh, to begin with is. is organized into three divisions, or four, eventually. One we're calling Eve Market, and that's what we're talking about, a health food store. The second one is Eve Farms, which starts with an existing farm I'm on right now, but basically includes um, other uh, local uh, organic growers and stuff, and also Eve Kitchen. And we're one of all three of those units. So basically, I or the other farms in the area, we produce the produce, not only to sell in the health food store, in what we're calling Eve's Market, but also to process, to go to Eve's Kitchen, uh, the processing facility, to freeze, pickle, can, whatever, make, make products that we in turn sell in the health food store or distribute throughout the state. So basically, we're, and eventually we want to move into Eve Energy, having solar and other. So basically, we're, uh, we have no utility bill. We're basically producing our, our own, at least our own power, if not selling power. So the ideal model here is then you've got at least that segment of the area's food and energy that are pretty, being produced completely in the area. In other words, not just uh, not buying in power from outside, not buying in the ingredients from outside, not buying in the, uh, the, the major components of this. Then you've got a very a radically different type of a business. Um, and by the way, this is all designed to be propagative, that we just start off with a very modest um, enterprise like the health food store and use the revenue stream from that to generate the others so that we could go on expanding indefinitely. And that's the key feature here. So this, this model is not just something we'll do to patch up some cracks here and there, but we'll begin solving certain problems and in the process solve eventually the community we define as the area, the state of Maine or the region or something. So, At some point, we're talking about the world. I mean, what, what, yeah. what is our community? It's, uh, so let, let, let me, let me ask so, you about, about that yeah. because someone could listen to this and think, oh, well, that means I have to restrict myself. I have to lower my expectations like, you know, uh, 200 years ago, pretty much everything we ate was grown within 50 or 100 miles. Um, any entertainment that we got was live local performers. Now we have this whole wonderful world of global shipping, of global, of, in of connectivity, of Internet. Are you saying that we go back to a kind of paleolithic no. life no. in order to be self-sufficient? Oh, very far. Very far from that. Very far from that. No, it's, so I mean, people continue doing uh, what whatever they're doing now. We would have no control over it, but we would make a lot more available. In uh, I mean, like right now, people buy apple juice, for example, and it comes from wherever, some other part of the country, maybe the Northwest or something. And uh, those that can be produced here, uh, that's not going to stop people from buying coconut and oranges. And in fact, we're assuming that Eve's market would carry, um, uh, you know, cashews and carob powder and all those kind of things. Uh, but as much as possible, we would like to things which are on the shelf which do not have to be bought in from somewhere else that we could make locally we want to do that and we probably do we could to encourage people to maybe uh, have more apple juice for breakfast instead of orange juice but uh, we couldn't enforce that even if we wanted to um, people will continue doing what they're doing but they'll have the options of and and, and this area frankly is kind of ground zero for the uh, um local movement there's already a lot of the very popular and, and uh, a lot of people would be very happy to buy and eat much more locally grown stuff if we provide it. So, no, we're not thinking of exerting any uh, particular force over people, but making things available. And I should emphasize, by the way, that this is to some extent 
I won't say it's pie in the sky. Up until not too long ago, it was basically, uh, you know, wishful thinking. We're moving ahead with this. We are incorporated. We do have some investments, some revenue sources lined up to begin it. Nowhere near enough. So that's the main thing is holding us up right now. One of the, what well, is the main thing, um, to to need basically um, pump priming money to uh, to basically, uh, you know, jumpstart the idea. But basically, as I said, the thing is designed to be self-propagated. Once it gets going, that it generates its own resources to expand. And um, and yeah, but you mentioned earlier. Uh, and I think it's very important. It's, we don't have any expectation of expanding too far, like probably not out of the state, if that, and so in, t- in terms of actually selling and doing things like that. But we do see an infinite capacity for exporting our ideas and, as you say, being a model so that someone uh, someone out in um, Tucumcari, New Mexico or, or Tampa, Florida or something will hear about this thing. Maybe they have me, I'll be speaking at, at uh, Chamber of Commerce or something or writing a book about Eve. Um, so that this becomes a model, and other people do the same thing somewhere else, and maybe not the same thing. Again, we, we're wanting our there are Eve market will be vegan, so it will not be carrying dairy products and meat products and so on. Some other place not, might not mm-hmm. do it that way. They might be some religious based, a church based uh, thing. Where a lot of health food stores are run by um, okay. people with a religious agenda. They might do that. So, Ours is not. So I'm just saying, other people will, will, will take the ideas and do with them what they want. But uh, we would we'd like to provide a model for. Yeah. So so. Um, sort of indulge me with a thought experiment. Um, so we're seeing food shortages. We're seeing food insecurity to some extent in the United States, and it probably will get worse um, around the world. Certainly hunger is going to be a huge issue. I just returned from South Africa where people in lockdown have no income and are not, you know, and there's not going to be enough food and not enough money to buy people to buy food for people. In, if the pandemic or you know the calamitous times continue to crack our civilization apart, including our food supply chain, um, both the distribution and cost and safety, what would having a network of Eve markets and Eve enterprises do to local communities to to kind of make them more resilient and to allow people to live? Uh, in the in the face of of more shocks like the one we're having now. Well, you just used the word that I would have used. It'll make them more resilient. It doesn't necessarily make them immune, but it gives them many more tools. Basically, basically, the whole idea is, is giving people more control over their individual lives and over their community lives. The communities can be more um, self-contained. By that, I don't mean insular. I don't mean cutting themselves off, but not being um, decimated by something happens some someplace far away. Um, so that's that's how I see it working, um, and and again I don't know how far we could go with it. It'll depend. Even if we had limitless amounts of money, for example, to work with, um, there's a limit to what you can do beyond the local community. We're not trying to make we we're not. It's not part of our idea to make other people dependent on us for food any more than we want to be um, dependent on others. So to try to uh, uh, enable other communities, other individuals to. Again, copy and model what we're doing to what extent they want to. That's the main thing I say that we could do. I don't know beyond that what any mm. anyone could do. So, I mean, one of the things that really struck me about the novel... Oh, and incidentally, just to interrupt you for a minute, um, you, we're talking about this current thing, and everyone is obsessed with this current thing, and for damn good reason. Um, but, you know, sooner or later, this is going to be over. 
um, probably later than sooner, but it's uh, it's going to pass, and it won't be as bad as the plague. I don't think well, a third of the people alive today will be dead. But however disastrous it gets, they will it'll pass, and and people will go on living their lives. And so I'm not so focused on this as the next one, and the next one, and the next one. We 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 are heading increasingly for one calamity after another. And so just simply to look at this one is I think it's very flawed because it's going to tend to like like. Y2K and then the Royal Embargo and stuff. When it's going, we're going to breathe a deep sigh of relief and, okay, good, now I can go back to McDonald's and, you know, go as I was doing. So I'm, I'm much more focused on a much more long-term um, picture. This is, this, is a, this is much more profound than, as profound as this may seem, the present crisis. This is just another shot across our bow, frankly, compared to what can and probably Right, and, and, and certainly, you know, it's, it's, you know it's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience for almost everyone I know. Like, I feel like I have an advantage because I was a history major. So I, I can imagine a world other than the one that I grew up in and have lived in my whole life. Um, I think for most people, like, this, this is a, a wake-up that, oh, the normal that we have experienced is actually quite a small blip in, in human history. Um, it very truly is. A very good friend of mine um, pointed out once, he said, uh, this, this is something we think is so solid and so we take for granted, civilization. He says, well, in the course of human events, this is a blip. This is like, you know, a few tens of thousands of years old, you know, and, and, uh, and what we call modern civilization, it's a couple of centuries old. And he's saying, how do we know that this isn't just flash in the pan? Because in, in, in the context of overall human evolution, human history, this is nothing. It, it, we could be saying that it is flash in the pan, that his civilization, at least as we know it, as we've come to take it for granted, um, again, if, it, if it's grown in this direction, then it has, has been. It's doing this for millennia. This is not some new thing. Moving uh, increasingly away from self-reliance, then, um, then yeah, we, we very likely have to reinvent civilization, not just, uh, not just community, but uh, we look back at our, our long-term history, see where these things are rose. These didn't just start with uh, Monsanto and with, uh, and with uh, Valdez, Exxon Valdez, you know, oil spills and things like that. These, uh, this is just the latest tip of the iceberg. It's just late, another shot across our bow, and we have to look at them not as individual shots, but as an overall systemic right. disease. Well, something yeah. that we dealt with. So, what, one of the things that I, I was reflecting back upon with the, with the current situation through um, into the through the eyes of the stranger is that you have in your in Asperia you have vine laws which essentially say that every homestead, which is somewhere like 50 to 100 people, has to be by law responsible for its own food and fuel and shelter. So essentially self-reliant for the basics. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's a nice idea. But now I'm looking at the news and I'm seeing people who essentially are forced to go to work because they're going to starve otherwise. And you really like points out like we have an entire civilization that's essentially a a coercive economic structure that makes people do work that they don't enjoy, that doesn't fulfill them, that doesn't necessarily help anybody else so that they will not starve and be homeless. And so, you know, thinking back to Asperia, this idea like if you know, if, if I didn't have to pay property taxes, if I didn't have to participate in a money economy and I could grow my own in connection with my neighbors, that would be a kind of freedom that I find astoundingly profound. Well, to some extent, 
Um, like the Asperians, for example, do pay taxes. Indeed, they pay much more taxes than we do, and very willingly and eagerly, because it's contributing to a society. They, as they call it, paying, paying rent in the larger house, as they call it. Um, and uh, they, they, they feel like, and, and we should. I mean, to the extent that we, we get a lot for our tax money. Um, but one of the, there's several distinctions here, several things that kind of mess things up. We tend to assume, number one, uh, we're a society which is completely based on the marketplace. Now. Every society, every civilization has an economic system, and they usually have some kind of equivalent of a marketplace, even if it's just some place where they all uh, gather at a central rock in the middle of the desert to you know, swap arrowheads for you know, beads or something. Um, there's some kind of a, of a marketplace, our own marketplace. In other words, I'm not anti-marketplace. In, in my, the, my, the garden book that you refer to, I, I, I'm, people are quick to pick up my criticism of the marketplace, and, and rightly so, but... The point that I'm making is the problem is not necessarily with the marketplace, but the nature of the marketplace. And the marketplace should be, and our economic system and our currency, monetary system and things like that, uh, they are not necessarily inherently flawed, but they should be our servants. And the way we current them, we become their servants, we're their slaves. The marketplace forces us, you were just getting at that, to, to, um, to do things, to live in a way that we very much don't want to but have no choice. Um, you know, there was a time when, uh, when our, the way our families and the economy uh, stuff were construed so that basically, typically, typically the man worked out at some kind of a job, wage job, and the woman stayed home and, and, and kept home and took care of the kids and stuff. And in some cases, the other way around. But either way, now it is virtually impossible. Uh, some person pointed out to me that's a luxury for, um, for one person to work out, and basically both have to. And some of it has to do with the expectations we've come up with. Um, we we have different expect, uh, expectations from leisure and from from technology and so on that um, that can't be met except by everyone harnessing themselves to this this juggernaut of a of a economy of a civilization and yeah we have more than we ever did before but we're in some ways much more deprived than we ever were before who has leisure time you know it's like um, yeah, we, we've, we've kind of put ourselves in that situation, and it needn't necessarily be that way. Um, even though I advocate self-reliance in, in, in Asperia, to go back to your, that example, um, there's an economy. People trade things. Officially, the system is based on barter, but there's people find other ways of uh, bartering things when it's awkward because, you know, you need to make some change or something like that, uh, certain th- things that are commodity goods like metal ingots or salt or maple sugar or things like that that people would use as coinage um but they're not they're not completely self-sufficient they're they're because of the vine laws as you mentioned they're every stead in other words every household which really is anywhere from um, i don't know 15 to 30 or 40 people some of them um is responsible for their own food uh, their own staple foods and their own domestic fuel um and i make that distinction because uh, they don't have to be every single condiment they can't use cinnamon unless they grow their own which they can't um they uh, they can't have an industry like a foundry or something that uses charcoal or something unless it's coming from their own place but it's it's spelled out in some detail there basically so that the primary self-sufficiency level is at the stead household level and then beyond that the fairs which are kind of like sort of like our counties uh regions have certain things that they produce in-house so to speak like not every household has to make their own sewing machine or bicycles but maybe every uh, fair every county or every region ha- has at least one sewing machine factory let's say um and this is the kind of thing that gives us the resilience that we're talking about needing right. in, in the kind of situation that right. so that so right another now. question that came up for me based on you know the the 
juxtaposition of your work and the current crisis is I talk a lot to my sister who lives in Manhattan in an apartment, which I don't believe she's left for almost two months now. And like our cities um, inherently unstable, like they, you know, those people, they they can't produce their own food. They rely on externalities for for sewage, for garbage disposal. They have to tap reservoirs that are far away. Like do you like should cities disappear? Well, uh, in, in a sparing type world, a, a world that was configured around self-reliance um, and sustainability, then they would disappear. You wouldn't have to make, you wouldn't have to abolish cities; they would fall apart. In my um, in, in the book, uh, there's some allusions to in their distant past uh, during the calamitous times that basically the cities were abandoned by anyone that could, and the people that left there. We see this in a lot of these disaster films and future fantasy, futuristic films. Is the people that are left there are the poor people that are kind of um, foraging among the ruins for whatever little they can get there. Um, and the lucky people are the ones that live out in the boonies. Um, I, 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 I envision that happening, certainly. Um, and nothing no one's going to cause it to happen, except it's, it, those, those concentrated populations are inherently, it's built into them that they are unsustainable and they're very vulnerable. You use the word unstable. I don't know how unstable they are. It depends on the context. At some times in our civilization, what could be more stable than New York City? You look at it right now. What, what, how can you look at that and say it's unstable? It's mm. so there. Um, and yet, that not sustainable. Right. Well, <laughs> even worse, you look, you look at someplace like Los Angeles or something where their whole their water would be more basic than water, you know. And and yet they have no capacity for supplying their right. Water. Well, and and we're seeing you know protests that to me look like very childish entitlement. Like I want my beer, I want my frosted ends of my hair, and I'm going to disregard social yeah. distancing uh, regulations because of it. You know, I think you can see like like people in cities. Um, like our entire civilization feels very entitled to all the nice things we have, even though they can't be sustained. Well, of course, the specific example you give, as you say, it is childish. And uh, it's, it's very particularly apropos of the exact situation, the people that are refusing um, um, self-quarantine and stuff like that and having big rallies in the Capitol steps and stuff. Um, they are, I mean, one might, it sounds perverse, one might say, well, at least the stupid people are killing themselves off. Um, if they were just going to go there and they were going to get COVID and they were going to die from it, one might at least get some reassurance from that. But, of course, they don't. They take it back to their communities where a whole lot of people who, um, they, they infect their families and their friends and their communities who maybe aren't as stupid as they are. Um, but um, that's in reference to this very specific thing. Um, I'm trying to uh, get a handle on this thought here. If we're talking about things in general, um, crises and, and the what you're calling the entitlement thing, um, the really overarching problem kind of in this, and we're seeing it totally in this, is is panic is we're so used to what we have, and we, we maybe forget how vulnerable we are until we start seeing it, and it definitely causes panic. Uh, like I say, people start hoarding ammunition and, uh, and doing things like that, and that itself is extremely destructive. Um, again, I don't know what one does about it, except having a, having a kind of resilience built into it so that people don't need to panic. They may suffer, they may have some hardships, um, but they know they're going to come through it, and that's that kind of feeling that you don't see in anywhere and certainly in places like manhattan you don't you don't see that inward assurance that people feel like it's going to be okay it's going to, it's going to be hard for a while but it's going to be okay like during world war ii i mean people we look back with the, the, the uh, rose-colored glasses of, of hindsight and well we it was all going to end mm -hmm. we were going to win 
at that time, it was very uncertain. People that they could, our whole civilization was was in crises, and it was not certain how it was going to come out. That's kind of where we're at now, and it's causing people to panic. Yeah. yeah. So um, I want to talk about Scatterseed, because uh, we, did, we didn't really get into it very much in the last podcast. And like, so like, so I'm starting to farm seriously now or garden seriously. And so I look at all the inputs and, I, and you know, all the fertility that I need to bring in and all the implements and the tools. And let's say everything total that I've spent over the last five years, let's say is about $5,000. And I would say probably less than $100 of that is the seeds. And seeds have like, you know, I can get the, the this corn, I can get the mortgage lifter tomato, I can what what's the problem with our current commercial seed supply that has these cheap, seemingly plentiful seeds the last a couple of years? What um, what lit a fire under you to start scatter seed that, that you felt was missing elsewhere? Well, now, as far as that specific thing, my, my example is actually quite different from most people. Um, when I first started saving seeds, which eventually turned into Scatter Seed Project, saving my own seeds, when I first came here, my, I didn't, no one was talking about heirloom seeds. No one was talking about uh, genetic erosion, gene pool erosion stuff. Um, at least uh, no one around me was talking about it. I simply came here out of college with this kind of romantic fantasy of being self-reliant, self-sufficient. I was going to grow it all myself. I was going to grow all my food, and because of my rather extreme radical uh, focus on that is I realized as kind of what you're applying I need to if I'm going to grow my own food I need to um, grow the inputs for that food including the fertilizer and including the seeds and um, the fertilizers was one of the things about the same time as seeds I realized I was working for a dairyman uh, on the other side of town um, and he, I didn't have any access to manure or material for composting and uh, I worked out a deal. I had lots of cow manure. Well, it immediately occurs to me, they're not my cows. I'm not generating this on my land. They're coming in from somewhere else, even if it's only five miles away. Um, so how sustainable is that? So I wanted to find a way of coming up with a food system that did not depend on those inputs, especially since I myself was not eating products from cows. Um, how vegan am I if someone else, uh, my veganism depends on someone somewhere else uh, keeping, killing, eating, slaughtering cows and uh, giving me the byproducts from them. It's, there, was, there was a disconnect there. And uh, similarly, um, with seeds. So when I first started thinking about seeds, I was like everyone else. I go to the seed catalog, seed company, and see what they've got. And it occurred to me that, uh, gee, I don't want to do this year after year, especially for the same seeds. If I get a packet of, like you say, mortgage with tomato seeds, um, why should I go back and buy them next year? That's not being very self-sufficient. So I started very slowly at first, learning about which things I could easily save seeds from, and increasingly got into... Um, broadening that out. And so unlike many people I know who might keep dozens of varieties of beans or dozens of varieties of tomatoes, I was originally only doing three or four varieties of each. But I had to also, uh, if I was going to eat kohlrabi, which I had never even had in my life before, but I discovered it and liked it, then I've got to learn how to save kohlrabi seeds, which is a lot trickier than beans and tomatoes because it's a cross-pollinator and it's a biennial. You have to do certain, jump through some hoops to, to get kohlrabi seed and leeks and kale and radishes and all these other things. I had to learn take it to a new level of seed saving. So that's how I got into it. And in the process, I ended up founding the, seeds, the Scatter Seed Project to not only save my own seeds, but to share them with other people. So that's where that came, that focus came from, and also where my focus on veganic farming 
realizing that uh, animal manure, however organic it might be, is not, it may be sustainable, but it's not very uh, efficient. The word I coined for it is eco-efficient in terms of what you have to put into it to get something back. It's rather wasteful because manure, after, after all, of course, is just a residual waste product of the animal's eating. And the animal, in fact, destroys in the process of peeing and pooping and breathing and moving and around breathing, uh, consumes roughly 90% of the uh, value of the food that ate. And so if you're going to keep livestock for the sake of meat, milk, leather, eggs, all that stuff, sure, go go at it. But the idea that some people have is that they need to keep more animals so they'll have more manure, they'll have more fertility. And that's just looking at it wrong. They are not a net source of fertility. And so I had to look at what is, and I realized that um, the forests and the grasslands, all of the natural ecosystems, um, the, the fertility of the Great Plains is not maintained by bison and antelope. It's maintained by grass, basically. So that's how we, we evolved toward a food system, an agricultural system, where I, basically I maintain my gardens um, with compost or mulches or whatever, but basically from the, the my, my field, hay field, and my forest. And similarly with the, the um, um, seed thing, is I'm basically trying to uh, keep, all, if I'm going to grow something, I'm going to save the seeds of it. And because they are, therefore, I don't have any reason to panic. You're talking about, or like I'm telling you, there's people that are going to the seed companies that they usually get all their seeds from, and good heavens, they're out. They're shut down. You thought you were being so self-reliant. Well, if you don't have any control over your seeds, then you may be living in a right. And a lot of those seeds that I used to get, um, you can't save seeds, right? Because they're... That's true. F1 hybrids, for example. And there are also patented seeds that you can't legally, you can save seeds from your own, own use, but you cannot propagate or sell them and so forth uh, without violating the law. They're, they're patented. Um, so, yeah, you're right. Not a lot of the seeds, and increasingly, companies have gone toward that. There are many companies which, most, most seed catalogs, if you go through and you look at uh, cucumbers, for example, or corn, you'll have a lot of trouble finding a non-hybrid corn or cucumber that you can save the seed mm. from. With beans, it's not the case, peas and beans. Tomatoes, not quite so much so, but still, lots and lots of stuff. Those are basically pushed all the, the non-hybrid stuff off the shelf. And again, that makes you, among other things, it makes you a captive customer to the seed company. It does not make you self-reliant and more self-sufficient in right. any way. So, so, so at, what, at some point, though, your, your interest in saving seeds for your own eco-efficiency and self-reliance turned into something bigger, like you've talked about genetic diversity of, of, of germplasm is essentially an insurance policy against, like, global human starvation, right? Exactly. Um, and even before I was quite that visionary, one thing that occurred to me is uh, when I joined the Seed Savers Exchange, for example, started rubbing, shoulder, rubbing shoulders with other seed savers, I began realizing there's a vast amount of stuff out there that is not accessible to you or to me if you're used to getting things off the shelf. And so um, one of the things, a lot of people assume that my scatter seed project deals with rare and endangered varieties, and it certainly does. A lot of them are in that category. There are many varieties in my collections that I make available that are um, already, I got them from some seed company. And uh, you could, too. Um, but one of the things that my project does, over the years I've had over 5,000 varieties that I've offered. Of many years I've had over 2,000 varieties available at a given year. And um, my project makes them, for one thing, they're, they're in one place. You can, get a, you can get tons of different things for your garden just from me alone. Um, and although that's also having an awful lot of eggs in one basket. But moreover, uh, even some variety I've got that you can get from 
Fedco, let's say, or Johnny's. Um, there's a lot of these particularly smaller companies where some guy living out in uh, Seattle or something might not get their catalog, might know about it, might not know that this right exists. Um, and so my, one of the things my Scattersea project has done is kind of put them on the shelf, albeit my own shelf, make them widely available. Now, would seed companies res- resent that, that I'm taking their seeds and competing with them? Not at all. In fact, some of them are very, very pleased with me because I'm not competing with them. For one thing, if I offer something, I've got a um, variety of carrot that I offer that you like very much. Maybe you could get it from uh, Fedco, for example. Um, and, in fact, you're going to have to. You, you might get it from me originally, but I don't sell you ounces of seed. Um, I sell one packet, and I sell it to you once. I don't want to see you again next year unless you did something to lose it. Um, so, and, and also price to try to be not be competitive with them. So you're going to be paying probably 50% more than getting it from someone else if someone else has it. And so you get a, a variety from me. Then basically, if you're serious about it, you're going to have to maintain your own seed henceforth. If you're not, then I let you know where you can get it um, from. So in other words, I'm acting as a almost a free advertisement and a popularizer for varieties that someone else has. Then you'll go to Johnny's and get that kind of corn, but you need mm. 10 pounds. You wouldn't, have known about, you wouldn't have known about that variety unless you saw it in Will Bonsall's mm. seed Project. So I'm serving a really big purpose, even to the overall seed industry, by putting stuff out there, by kind of making anyone all over the country aware of thousands of varieties, that not just the companies that you're used right. to dealing but with. But you also talk about, like, the loss of, of certain varieties and what that could cost us in terms of global climate instability. Like, you know, I, I have a garden, and so I will ask local gardeners, hey, what beans grow well here? And I'll get like 12 different answers, yeah. and I'll, I'll buy a bunch of them, and only two of them will work. And some of them are heirloom, and it's hard to find, and I have to like, you know, work really hard to find those varieties. Like if they disappear... And the climate keeps changing or now that we have fire ants in our garden that we didn't used to have or like when we when we lose those those genetic stocks, we're we're like talk about what 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 the danger is. Well, like they say, extinction is forever. And that's not just true of uh, polar bears and stuff. It's also true of varieties. And some of these some of these varieties, incidentally, are not all that special. There are many varieties we'll have that may actually is not all that strong with some this uh, kind of stereotype that heirloom seeds are more um, resistant or better flavored. Not necessarily. In many, many cases they are. They tend to be more resilient, um, which is not quite the same. A lot of varieties I have may be um, somewhat vulnerable um, to this or that disease um, compared to some something that's been bred more recently by Cornell or someone who come up with that. Variety. Just one example is a, an heirloom cucumber that I discovered many years ago uh, from uh, the Boothby family here in Livermore, Maine. I got it. It said it had been in their family for many generations, never been commercially offered. I obtained some from them, and I made available. Um, other companies got it from me, and it was and is widely grown in the seed trade. Um, I'm the original source. Well, actually, they're the original source of it. In any case, one of the problems with it, it has some resistance to, I think, I think it's either powdery mildew, maybe it's sort of said there's some wilt, some some disease that usually it's not a problem for me, but occasionally it can be a problem. Since then, I believe Cornell has taken that variety and bred from it a strain of of the Boothby blonde cucumber that is resistant to that disease. So it's not like these things aren't capable of being improved upon, and they aren't necessarily that great themselves. But collectively, this is the big thing. Collectively, they represent a much greater resilience uh, because there are so many 
variations between them. Some variety, for example, that might seem rather mediocre right now. There are some in my collection. I don't have a lot good to say about it because I haven't noticed anything outstanding about it. It may have in its genes the resistance to some disease, which is now just evolving in in gardens and fields in the American um, landscape, um, that uh, that five years from now is going to be devastating everything, and this thing just happens to have the, the, the resistance to it, which may make it either useful in and of itself or may make it very useful as breeding stock to come up with a whole array of other um, improved varieties. So this stuff, it's intrinsically valuable beyond the obvious agronomic or agricultural um, superiority of it. We just need a lot of we need a lot of diversity. It's the diversity itself is is valuable for its own sake, even if the the diversity includes a lot of crap. Because uh -huh. we can't, you don't know what's crap yet. Exactly, and I even if even if I knew now that whole thing, as I say, it could change five years from now because something it looks like it's not really worth saving. Um, that's why generally in uh, that's one reason why my project is not uh, more self-sustaining fiscally uh, is. Because I'm, maintain, I'm maintaining a lot of stuff, almost almost indiscriminately. I'm saving lots of stuff that it, it doesn't get a lot of demand. A lot of people don't ask for it, and there's probably good reasons why. Again, there's an awful lot of books in your library. Sit there for decades, no one ever goes after it. Did they throw it out? Did they decide we need to shelf space for more um, more popular things? Um, no, we we try to keep these things going as much as possible for the sake of the diversity. And um, so yeah, so but therefore because of that, the amount of my sample fees that I get for things that people actually re actually request barely cover the cost of the sample fees, and it does nothing to cover the cost of the thousands of other varieties that I'm maintaining that don't get requested. Or some variety I may go, maybe this year I get one request for that sample, and maybe not another one for five years, and by that time the viability is low, I've got to grow it out again. So these kind of things are not at all financially sustainable. They can't be. Um, if I were a seed company, we're a very, very different thing. I would take my 1,200p varieties, for example, and I'd pick out several dozen of them, perhaps, that are really especially unique, and I'd throw the rest away. I'd take the ones that are popular that everyone wants. Uh, but there's a difference between a library and a bookstore, and it's the difference between me and right. a Right. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure Noah's Ark was not a cruise company, right? I'm sure, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure, he, didn't, I'm sure he didn't make <laughs> money on it. And I think right. Well, the analogy that I sometimes am quoted on in, uh, in the media, even, even though uh, it's sort of... Uh, Species because I'm an atheist, but as I pointed out, is that uh, my situation is being Noah. I'm not God. I don't get to decide which things go on the ark, which are the valuable ones or not. I might, I, my job is to load them all on and keep them alive for 40 days and nights or whatever until we land on Ararat and they all come out and do their thing. Um, so again, I'm maintaining varieties. You know, I've got the crocodiles and the mosquitoes and so on on my in my collections too. And uh, in the future, at the other end of this disaster, uh, not just the Corona thing, but this crisis, whatever we call modern civilization, is going through. At the end of it, uh, other people, not me, I, I basically avoid being a plant breeder. I've accidentally bred a few varieties, very few, but I sometimes people refer to me as a plant breeder. I don't know anyone. Uh, no one that I know works harder uh, at not <laughs> being a plant breeder. Every morning I wake up and I think, how can I avoid breeding any new varieties today? My job is to keep them all static. Noah's job was not to breed. You just keep these things like they are. Don't be any change at all. And in the future, evolution or the plant breeders of the future, they'll decide whether this was worth my keeping, and they'll decide what to do to improve it. Yeah. Not my so job. can you paint a picture for us about what saving seeds actually involves? Because I imagine just, you know, growing the thing, shaking it out, putting it in an envelope, and labeling it and putting it on a shelf somewhere. But it's more than that, isn't it? 
it depends completely on which crop. For, for something like beans and peas, that's pretty much what it is. It's quite simple to do them. And moreover, since they don't cross-pollinate readily, um, I can grow, I, I can and do grow two, three hundred varieties of, of peas or beans right in my same garden. They're only separated by about a foot or so and on, on the, the trellis that they're supporting. They, 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 they might cross physically if I have them too close, but they're not, there's no sexual hanky-panky going on there because they do it to themselves. Um, that's not the same with a lot of crops, corn, cucumber, cucumbers, for example. They will cross-pollinate readily. So in the case of those, I have to isolate them. If I'm doing 10 different cucumber varieties a year, I have to have them in 10 different little gardens, little isolation plots. And um, so there's that complication of, of keeping them pure. Um, and then also along with that is the complication of having a large enough population. With some things, with peas, it doesn't matter that much. Usually with most varieties, there's not that much genetic diversity in the variety to lose too much. If you want to have a very few seeds, you'll probably have the whole picture. With corn, for example, you need to have maybe a hundred or a couple hundred plants, really, to uh, otherwise you might be trunking, tr- excuse me, truncating the genetic diversity of that particular um, species. So that's an issue. And then the other complication with a lot of these uh, uh, minor minor crops is a lot of biennials. Um, the, a good example is the rutabaga. I have or did have uh, one of the largest collections of rutabagas on the planet. Most of them are dead now, but I, once I get some sustainable funding again, I can, in most cases, get them back, um, either from the original source or from someone who got it from me, such as USDA, and make them available for distribution again. But the problem with rutabagas is that they, uh, they'll cross with each other. So, again, if I'm going to grow, uh, and, and also that they're biennials. So uh, you could spend years growing rutabagas. I've had people say this with turnips, carrots, rutabagas. I've grown them for years. I've never seen any seeds. How do they get the seeds from it? I always go to the seed catalog. Um, these are biennials. They take two years to do their sex thing. And so the first year, you'll never see any seed at all. You'll never see any flowers. And so, therefore, you have to overwinter them somehow. Now, I'm in Maine, which is not a banana belt, and it's uh, particularly challenging to maintain them. Either uh, few, Only a few things can be overwintered in the field, like chicories and parsnips. But pretty much everything else has to go into my root cellar and spend the winter there and then be brought out in the spring and be replanted in an isolation plot, then it does its stage, its uh, sexual stage. So these are all additional hoops to get through, and that's one of the reasons why they're a little daunting to a lot of home gardeners that don't want to move on to that level. And that's one of the things that I try to push, is don't be satisfied doing beans and tomatoes. Move on. Whatever, wherever you are on this learning curve, keep climbing up higher to get so you can be more responsible for more of your mm-hmm. stuff. So for people who are, like, you know, suburban, and they just have a lawn now, and they're thinking, well, maybe I'll... I'll put in a couple of beds like we're not telling people right now, you know, move to Maine, get a 60 acre farm and change your life. Is, are there things, useful things people can do right now to begin gardening that you think are, are, are more than just, you know, greenwashing or lip service or feel good? Absolutely. Sure. They can they can they can start spading up their lawn, you know, get rid of the patio and, and get rid of the croquet. Um, court there and, and do what you can right there. You can do a significant amount. You certainly will not grow all your food on that, uh, not even all your vegetables on this space, but you can grow something significant. It'll be that much more than what you're doing before. Also, a lot of people, this is particularly true of urban gardening. I'm not particularly into that because I don't live there and I don't understand the picture quite as well. But I know quite a lot of people that live in, in uh, urban and even suburban uh, areas that there's maybe a lot of land resource around you that you don't own the deed for, maybe a vacant lot. Uh, a strip along the road, or maybe some nearby, like a hospital or a school or something where there's some 
a lot of land over by the ditch or something. There's a piece that no one ever uses that one could get permission to use it, perhaps to rent it. Or in many cases, I've known several people. Their next door neighbor's got a big, big back lawn that they don't have, and um, and they get permission to uh, use that. Or they live on the edge of a farm field. Um, they make an arrangement with the farmer to use some of that, and perhaps they give up some of their you know your extra zucchini and tomatoes and stuff to them. But there are lots of things that one can do to leverage this to improvise a. Uh, improvise a farm when you don't have mm. one. And if somebody wants to take it to the level that you've taken it, you know, your 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 book is several hundred pages, the uh, you know guide to, to self-reliant gardening, um, very detail oriented. Um, how how can people learn what you have learned without going through the same multi-decade trial and error process? Are there are there resources beyond your book, places to apprentice, organizations where, you know, where you can clone Noah's? Well, of course, you're very much setting me up for, for, a, for a totally self-serving um, statement. Yeah, buy my book. You know, that works very well. Um, but I'm not sure other resources beyond that. We have a, a couple of few apprentices some years, and we... Uh, Right now, we're we're not having any openings for apprentices, at least this year, and who knows about next year. And um, um, there are resources, and I'm not a good one to tell you what they are. I mean, you can probably get involved in a, in your states or area organic uh, gardening farming uh, organization or something like that. Uh, the key thing I can say is simply do it. Get on the learning curve. Start at the bottom, work your way up. Just go and do it. And do like I did. Do all the screw-ups you can. Make all the mistakes you can, and uh, like fail better next year. And... Um, because And also, people should not assume, in spite of everything I've written, I'm very careful to only write about things that I've actually done. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm doing it um, all, all every year. Um, there's a lot of detail about growing your own grain. How can you be really self-reliant unless you're growing your own staples, like grain and potatoes and soybeans, legumes, and things like that? Um, although I've grown all of those things over time, I'm not growing all of them. The last year or two, I haven't grown any, any wheat, for example. The only grain I've grown is buckwheat, actually. Um, but uh, or, ordinarily, I, I do grow most, if not all, of those things. I've never grown all of my grain. In no year have I ever grown all of my, mm. particularly all my wheat. Yeah, some years I've grown substantial amounts of it. And my feeling has been, and I think anyone else might look at it the same way, even if they carry it to this extreme, is to, if you can't do it all, grow amount to get your hand in. Just find out what how to go about it. Get a, get a feeling for it. how do you do it. How do you thresh it? How do you winnow it? Even if you're only doing a half a bushel or you know some pounds for your own use, um, that means that when the doo-doo does hit the fan, and you end up with a situation like this, you could ratchet up if you needed to. You or community or whatever, um, you have the skills, the experience, the uh, whatever infrastructure you need, you have the tools. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I've been doing it to a very great extreme, even with things that I never, I've never grown all my own sunflower seeds. They're a very big part of my diet, actually. They're my main source of fat, of oil, and yet uh, I buy most of them. But I, uh, some years I, I grow varying amounts of them. Some years I've grown most of what I eat. Most mm -hmm. years I haven't. So anyone can do that. Uh, don't don't be put down because you're not doing what someone else has done. No one should feel like, oh, be in awe of Will Bonsall because he's doing all this. For one thing, it's not certain that Will Bonsall is doing all of that now. Will Bonsall has done that. Otherwise, he wouldn't presume to tell you how. But don't think because I'm not doing everything he is, um, then, then I must be a failure. I've known other lifestyle gurus and stuff who have kind of portrayed themselves as a do as I do, you can do this. And I, I'm very loath to do that. Uh, for one thing, in late in recent years, I'm just doing this completely by myself. Um, this would not function as doing as farming as a family, and um, um, very little apprentice labor, almost no hired labor. So, uh, so there's a lot of things I'm having to cut back on. Aside from the fact that I'm age 70, 
Um, I'm feeling in great health, but I'm, I have some limits on what I can do. And anyone else who recognizes the same thing, don't do what you can do. Don't don't be disappointed because you're not doing what someone else is. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so I do want to uh, tee you up for some more um, self-serving information because I think it is, you know, it's serving all of us. The work you're doing with Scatterseed. Um, you know, the, 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 the education so. you're providing and this model for Eve Enterprises. So um, I know we've we've talked offline about that. This is a, you know, a challenging time for you financially. What are some ways that people can help? Oh, thank you very much for that. Um, I was going to get to it if you didn't. Uh, the uh, as far as helping the Scatterseed project, and in fact, in fact, even conceivably helping the the Eve thing get uh, kick started. Um, if anyone wants to know my, uh, I, have, I have a Facebook account now, by the way, which I've never had in my life, never intended or wanted to have, but my helper has set it up for me, so one can find me on Facebook under Will Bonsall. Um, they can uh, anyone needing to pay me planting seeds if they go to the Grassroots Seed Network, Grassroots Seed Network. And find my listing okay. there, and one and piece, they can pay me. So I'll, I'll put them. a link. To, I'll put a link to that yeah. in the in the show notes. But if you just search for Grassroots Seeds okay, Network, thanks. Seed Network, singular Grassroots Seed Network. If you just search Google, you'll find it. Yes, that's it. And uh, and if anyone goes there and either wants to buy seeds or a donation or whatever, there's um, all the usual I've always had is cash, checks, money order. But now I've added on PayPal. It's, again, that's a big leap for me. Um, Instagram, I have an Instagram account, which I never even knew how it is, what it works. My uh, helper has set that up, so you can find me on Instagram at uh, scatterseedproject.org. And also, we also my helper set up a Patreon account. I never even knew anything about that. Basically a way for people wanting to donate to something or to pledge to something. And that would be under Will Bonsall and slash Project, I believe. So yes, anyone, anyone would be more than welcome. Anyone too that wishes to help, uh, any aspect of this, to any level they can. It's very, very, very helpful, especially right now. Great, and um, you're you're not an official five hundred one c three nonprofit, right? Uh, yeah, well, we are not the, the Eve of which Scatterseed is functioning as a as a division of it. Eve is incorporated in the state of Maine as a nonprofit organization. As far as being federally recognized, that's in the okay. process right now. So um, I don't know if right now if anyone can make uh, deductible donations. Um, I think they mm-hmm. can. I think they can. It, uh, it, it, it would be kind of uh, in limbo until uh, uh, federal IRS does finish this. Um, Gotcha. And you're also looking for investors in Eve. So what what would what if someone's got, you know, extra cash lying around to invest? What sorts of questions should they be asking themselves before getting in touch with you? Well, um, uh, we aren't so much looking for it. Well, we are looking for investors. We've been mainly approaching people locally who have a vested interest in having this this local project get going. But anyone who is, um, well, probably the first thing would be simply to contact me, and, and we could talk, um, particularly if anyone is contemplating a, a larger thing. The, the, uh, right now we have a, an arrangement, which I call, um, uh, what are we calling it, lonation, uh, uh, which is basically if someone wants to donate money to this project but doesn't want to totally donate, they, they might want to get it back someday. 
So in other words, if they're um, they're loaning it, and it, it basically sounds like a bank loan. This probably, I, I, as I envision this thing, we haven't done this with anyone yet. I envision this being kind of like a bank loan with the usual uh, 10-year thing and, and 6% interest. And I plan on putting some of my own money into this as much as I can, which isn't much. Uh, some other people are looking at this. Um, in my own case, I would put it in probably never want to get it back. Um, it would be a donation. But uh, So in other words, if someone wants to put a lot of money into this but doesn't quite want to totally commit this forever, wants the uh, opportunity of if they have to for some reason later, that's that's an option. Um, and uh, But that's, I guess, the, the sort of thing I'm envisioning at this point. Gotcha. gotcha. For smaller amounts, of course, anyone simply could make a donation mm -hmm. to the the right. Okay. And so, you know, and so for people who are thinking like looking for um, places where money can go now that would be helpful, uh, like I can't think of anything more important than scatter seed, than promoting veganic, sustainable agriculture and and spreading this model. This like this, this the, the, the silver lining of this pandemic, as you said, is it's not the Black Plague. It's not going to kill a third of us. It's a shot across the bow, but it's a wake up call. And it's a Very wake up call that the that the ways that we have thought about the world have proven inadequate for most of us. Um, but you've been you know, you and many other people have been pointing this out for decades. And you, I think, uniquely have a set of tools and skills and um, steps and processes and tactics and answers for people who otherwise would simply be shaking their heads and saying, you know, our ship is sinking. I don't know what to do about it. So this this, you know, I, I hope so. We can't give up. We have to have a reason to get up in the morning and otherwise it might just go, you know, and get drunk or something. Um, I, I, I agree with what you said, obviously, that you don't know anything more relevant, more a better way of putting money. Well, I, I think so, too, because I'm me. Um, but as far as other people deciding a priority over anything else they might want to invest money or donate money to, um, I would say this should, would, should have a particular appeal to a few demographics. Number one, vegans, particularly because of the system of farming that we're promoting and, the, the, and a store, a model of farming processing model. Uh, maybe someday they'll get be able to buy Eve products off the shelf in their local health food store that are produced here. Um, but anyway, that's um, people that are into into a, a vegan economy, a vegan diet, should find this very apropos. I don't know of anything else like it anywhere. Several people said they don't know of any other a vegan health food store, for example, and, a, and especially a cluster of of uh, enterprises like this. I would think it would also appeal to. Um, uh, people that are concerned about, the, again, the, the genetic erosion thing, the seed-saving thing. And I would think it would also appeal to people that are concerned about uh, local economies, even though this particularly relevant for my local economy. As I say, I see, I envision it expanding to include other economies, if, if other communities, if only as a model, as an example, a successful thing, blueprint that someone might copy to work. Right. Well, so I would think those, I, I, those would be the groups who I would knock on their door saying, hey, well, yeah, you want to, I would hold up hold out the cup and maybe this is something you would like. Right. To and, you know, and for, if, if you want to do this in your local area and like, I, you know, I would want you to do as many things as possible so that I can, you know, copy your successes and avoid your failures. Exactly. Anything that someone you're in North Carolina, anyone that someone in North Carolina were to invest in Eve or Scatter Seed Project would not help their immediate community not, not, and not directly. Um, it would in the, in the longer run, particularly, like I say, by by providing a successful model that others can uh, 
can can use can use as a blueprint. It's really nice if someone uh, has been there before. If you're if you're exploring some new countryside, it's really nice to find a path that someone has marked for right. you. Um, so that's kind of what we hope this to be in the bigger picture, aside from the immediate. Right. Effect. So folks can find you if they just search for your name on Facebook, just to friend you, and the, the last name is spelled B O N S A L L. Um, they can find you at scatterseedproject.org. Um, I'll put the links to the um, Grassroots Seed Network and the and for um, Instagram and uh, whatever whatever else. I'll uh, I'll put a link to the Boothby Blonde cucumbers. If people... Well, you know what, Howard? I'm going to do something else. Also, I'm I'm very terrible about this. I'll probably regret it tomorrow. But I tend to be very promiscuous with my email. Um, Address. If you think it's a good idea, um, I will just tell people they can find me, uh, they can write to me at uh, Will Bonsall, is at wabonsall at gmail.com. Okay. I'll probably regret this. I've already, I've already got a big quad, a huge, several, you know, big queues of, of seed requests and information and stuff already on my um, on my uh, computer, but I do like to Okay, great. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to encourage well, people I, who want to help to contact you first. And uh, people who want help to... Okay, if they send me a message, they, they may not hear from me within an hour of their message, unless they say I want to donate a million dollars in your project. Um, if they got some particular request, they'll hear from me sooner or later. But like I say, as the, as the dust clears away, I'll hopefully okay, catch up. Okay, great. That's, that's very generous of you. So, Will, thank you again for, for your vision, for your hard work. I'm looking forward to the second uh, edition of the Arrow Tales to, uh, to, fi- to find out how... Uh, how he takes his knowledge and and returns to a broken civilization to try to fix it, which is something that uh, I think we're all going to be up to yeah. for the next foreseeable future. And thank you very much, Howard, for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, you. be well. And uh, yeah, so folks, uh, you know, let's let's make this let's make this happen. Let's make scatter seed and Eve a thing that can help us move uh, into a, a more self, you know self-reliant, sustainable, elegant, and happier future. So, Will, thank you again for everything. Thank you again, and to all your your listeners, uh, keep well, keep safe. Okay, so if you found that conversation as earth-shakingly important as I did, I hope you'll do a few things. One, I hope you will share this. Even just email a link to this podcast to just one other person and say, hey, this would be great to give a listen to. Uh, Second, I hope you will support Will by going to uh, you can also go to scatterseedproject.org if you, um, that has a link to the Patreon on the donate page. It also has a link to just make a PayPal donation um, if you don't want to uh, be ongoing. But I would encourage you if you if you if this is important to you to become an ongoing sustainer so that Will has a reliable source of funding that he can count on to know that he can keep doing this work, that he can hire people, that he can get some better cold storage, things that that you have to keep paying for, the electricity for that, you know, on a regular basis, much better from his perspective to have an ongoing, reliable source of funding. I know he's on on the way to making a 501c3, so these can be tax deductible, but right now we just need to get him some funds to help him keep going. He's one of the most selfless, hardworking, wise people I've ever met. And I would hate for his work to uh, die on the vine because we couldn't figure out how to support it. Uh, Let's see, what else is going on? In running news, I've been doing um, six milers, seven milers real slow and alternating with walking days. Been still doing a lot of gardening, preparing beds, 
clearing weeds, putting down wood chips and mulch. So I feel like I'm getting my exercise there. My eating has been pretty shitty for the past uh, couple of weeks. Just a lot more, you know, semi-junky food, sweets. And I've put on a few pounds that I'm not happy with. And I feel like, um, you know, I woke up yesterday and decided I was going to do something about it. So I started with a, a one day water fast. And now I'm going to add uh, some raw stuff in for the next couple of days and then ease my way back. Uh, hopefully, uh, well, I know that I'll, uh, you know, adjust my taste buds to the point where the foods that I'm happy eating that are good for my health are going to be, you know, exciting again when I, when I uh, drop that. So if that's, if that's you too, uh, know that you're not alone. Know that it's uh, it's totally understandable during this stressful time um, to gain a few pounds, to let some things slip, but also know that you can turn it around. If you'd like to work with me to turn it around, uh, my laser coaching program, I've decided to go with a pay-what-you-can model or a pay-from-the-heart model. I've set a minimum, um, and uh, the, which is half of what I normally charge, so less than $1,000 for an entire year of unlimited laser coaching. I encourage you to pay more if you can up to the retail price of 1997 for the year. And if you'd like to pay more than that, I can apply that to a scholarship fund to help people for whom the 997 is is unreachable. So I really want to help people the way, you know, I've been uh, helping myself with these techniques that can really turn things around. You know, the the idea of being healthy is not that you never slip up it's that you know how to get back on track and that you do it quicker and quicker each time. So these um, these little ratchets of the wrench, as Josh Lajani likes to put it, uh, don't take you far back in, in uh, unhealthy directions. To find out more about laser coaching and to sign up, just go to plantyourself.com slash laser. Also, if you are interested in becoming a health coach, we're running a new cohort of the WellStart Health Coach Training Program. You can find out more and register for an enrollment interview in which you interview me and I interview you to figure out if it's a good fit. And you can find that at wellstartcoach.com. We're starting the new cohort on May 18th. All right. So the running news already included a lot of the gardening news. You know, basically, we're just working on self-reliance, adding a lot more calorie crops, uh, looking to put some potatoes in. And our neighbor has a garden that uh, is full of uh, overwintered volunteer rye that he hasn't harvested this year. Uh, they're getting on in years and he doesn't have the time or energy to really tend the garden. So we've talked about uh, us taking it over and sharing the bounty with him and also with the local food pantry. Um, time for thanks. Thanks, of course, to Will Ridenauer for Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace, uh, the theme music for this show. I know I've been uh, a little bit uh, lackadaisical about using it ever since I came back from South Africa with this whole new podcast, but I, I love it so much. I'm still going to keep using it, so here, here it is now. And, of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jamble Kanofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Assert, David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Dorona Bizov, Ju and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the 
Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Avivala L, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the Inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch of Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marin Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Home Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lenin, Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, B.M. Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Moulton, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullish, Leo Orheden, Meg from Amistez, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sarah Lee Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lori Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owens, and Sagar Nayak for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes of Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lassert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carl- Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch at Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Lenny Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Lenin, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, and Michael Lushton for your generous support of the podcast that's it for now as always be well my friends